The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 30 Grief Can Take Care of Itself Now something so sad has hold of us that the breath leaves and we can't even cry. Charles Bukowski Homicide is a crime that has a profound and lasting impact on the victim's family, friends, and community. The sudden and violent nature of murder can lead to particularly intense grief for those directly and indirectly affected by the loss. The fact that someone has taken the life of a loved one can evoke strong feelings of anger, and those individuals and families often find the experience has an impact on all aspects of their lives. The shock and trauma of the homicide can affect personal relationships, work, social life, physical and emotional well-being, values, and beliefs about the world, trauma leaving a feeling of fear and confusion. When family and friends initially learn of the murder of a loved one, they often experience intense shock due to the sudden and unexpected nature of the death. Families must then deal with the police, the coroner, and funeral directors, which can be extraordinarily confusing and foreign. Often in these early stages, families require a lot of practical assistance, such as dealing with everyday tasks, coordinating with other agencies, notifying other family and friends, and organizing the funeral. Dealing with all of this, as well as trying to comprehend the tragic loss of a loved one, can feel overwhelming. People may also experience intrusive, graphic thoughts about the violent way in which the person was killed. These thoughts may be about how they imagined the person suffered as they died, or actual memories from the scene of the crime or morgue. In some cases, the loved ones may feel their own safety is at risk. And as time goes on, the full impact of the loss is felt, and deep emotions such as sorrow, fear, anger, and guilt are experienced in all their nuances. People begin to understand what the death of their loved one means, and how much they miss them dearly. However, it is of utmost importance to point out that an individual's experience of grief is unique. Although many common experiences are shared, which lead us, and particularly investigators in the media, to expect a consistent amount of expressed feelings of grief, including a visual sense of isolation and aloneness, particularly as society places some of the blame on the victim and attaches a stigma to the death, as such was the case with Donna Tompkins, as she was accused of being too promiscuous, basically sleeping around and thus asking for it. Also expected are expressions that no one understands the depth of one's grief and to project unrealistic expectations of the time it will take to heal, and to pronounce persistent and unsettling grief over questions that the homicide has not yet been resolved. And while dealing with the coroner's office, as loved ones identify the body of the victim or victims, this can be particularly difficult for families as they may not be adequately prepared for the experience, yet must appear so. 
The victim, with physical injuries such as Donna and her three-year-old daughter Justine's charred remains, could not be identified by sight, but if seen by loved ones, they would have in no way been allowed to touch or spend time with their bodies. As the autopsy or post-mortem was performed to establish the cause of death, not to mention the undetermined status as a result, this experience would have been even more traumatic for the family, and any delay in the release of the body and timing of the funeral should have been mutually expressed as frustrating and painful as to appear properly mournful. Funerals are an essential part of a grieving process. They can provide a comforting ritual that allows family and friends to farewell their loved one in a meaningful way. And in the case of a homicide where the victim has sustained injuries such as Donna and Justine's, people were not only encouraged not to view the body, but were forbidden. And those survivors were expected to project as much of that misery as possible. To really stir up the pot, if no offender has been identified, the police may attend the funeral and the media may attempt to get a story, and police attendance can feel like an invasion of privacy but may be a necessary part of their investigation. So what of this unwanted media attention? When someone is murdered, the media naturally wants to report the story's details to the public. This can mean they approach family members seeking comments, a photograph of the deceased, or further information about the crime. The media can be persistent in obtaining information, creating enormous stress for families. They can also print inaccurate information or appear to blame the victim, which can be further distressing, as was the case for Donna. But in most cases, media coverage is a vital means of reaching community members who may have information that will help the police with the investigation, despite the discomfort involved. And such distress must be expressed to sufficiently project mourning as to avoid the spotlight of guilt police and media alike are looking to identify. The media may print further reports on the case after court hearings, during the trial, if the offender applies for early release, or even years later if the offender is released. The media may also refer to the case if a similar one occurs. These reminders may raise feelings of pain and grief for the victim's family, even many years after the loved one had died. And still, these emotions must be expressed publicly. Scorn does not pass easily, and nor had this podcast escaped such a wrath. But most importantly, dealing with the police can be difficult for families, particularly in the early stages when people are in shock, feeling confused, and trying to cope with their loss, as one is expected to do so, to cry out loudly in grief. While the police may have apprehended someone for the murder or may still be investigating either way, the police will need to have contact with people closest to the victim as they provide information about the death and investigation of the crime. The police may be unable to provide families with the information they want while an investigation is still ongoing, and that frustration must be displayed as facts are held close to the vest. Police may regard some family members or friends as potential suspects, which can cause a significant amount of distress which should also be on exhibition for all to see. Finding a trusted police officer who will provide accurate and precise information can be essential, yet sometimes impossible. It must serve as fuel for perceptible discontent. The good old boy network can work its magic, no doubt, but less can be said for community black sheep, outsiders, and those with blemished reputations or records, or even those with targets on their backs, for whatever cause. Yet this network must be both exploited and cursed as abdominable. Again, friends and family members can feel like they are living a nightmare, 
It is normal to feel shock, disbelief, numbness, confusion, anger, denial, and a feeling that the world has suddenly stopped, and this needs to be spoken of clearly. Murder is a violation of rightness and fairness in life, and as time passes, reactions must include rage, a desire for revenge, anxiety, hopelessness, depression, and or the inability to eat or sleep, and one is expected to grow thin and frail. In the case of the Tompkins double homicide, other reactions should have included frustration, fear that the murderer may return, survivor's guilt, and self-blame for not being able to protect not only the mother, but child. All these reactions are normal and need to be addressed in a bereavement process, but how they are expressed will, in each and every circumstance, remain individually unique. But nonetheless, what is normal? What is grieving? Denial. When you first learn of a loss, when it's normal to think this isn't happening, you should feel shocked or numb. A quick and easy way to deal with the rush of overwhelming emotion, as denial is a useful defense mechanism. Anger. As reality sets in, you must face the pain of your loss. You must feel frustrated and helpless. These feelings will later turn into anger. You should direct it toward other people in the meantime, or a higher power, or life in general, and a voice the anger you harbor with the loved one who died and left you alone as is natural, normal, and expected. Bargaining. During this stage, you should dwell on what you could have done to prevent the loss. Common thoughts, if only, and what if, should be spoken aloud. You may also try to strike a deal with that higher power and cry out to the sky for all to hear. Depression. Sadness will set in as you begin to understand the loss, and you should allow it to affect your life significantly, visually. Signs of depression should include crying, sleep issues, and a decreased appetite, as mentioned. You need to feel overwhelmed, regretful, and lonely, and talk about it so, expressing it by moping and dragging your feet. And lastly, acceptance. In this final stage of grief, you must accept the reality of your loss. It can't be changed after all. Although you must still feel sad and exhibit tears occasionally, you can start moving forward with your life, yet with none too much haste. However, it is important that you remember before this stage of acceptance, at those moments the spotlight of scrutiny still burns bright amongst the criminal investigation. Those signs, per se, of denial, anger, bargaining, and depression must be on full display and expressed loud and clear to match the status quo for the sake of appearing innocent as can possibly be. Namely, to also appear a victim, God forbid, a culprit. Yet again, every person goes through these phases in their own way. As some may go back and forth, skip one or more of the stages altogether, or simply may fail to align their body language with their inner feelings, which can lead to dire consequences, such as ending up on a suspect list, so be sure to get it right.
This being said, when family friend Steve Nelson stopped by the Tompkins residence a week after the double homicide, John behaved as would be expected. When he quickly became emotional, expressed his fears to Steve, as he desperately hoped his wife didn't hurt herself, or as John put it, my little girl. John told Steve that he had just had Justine out on the farm that Saturday night, days before the fire, and that he had been concerned that Donna would be upset if, when Justine returned home to her mother, she might speak of the woman John had over that weekend a lady named Sheila, who had been working at Cuba High School at the time. John said that things were different with Donna after she returned from the East Coast, but Steve was not sure what John meant by this statement, and he had told the police as much, stating, I am not sure what he meant by that. But what did the police feel in their gut upon hearing secondhand of John's method of mourning? And what had they sensed upon hearing from an inspector from the West Central Illinois Task Force, Carl Williams, but a day later? Inspector Williams, who had known John for nearly 20 years, and whom both had been, according to him, good football players back at Cuba High, and who had occasionally ran into John at Fayette Post Office, and having often seen John with his now estranged wife Donna a handful of times out and about, or at church with a little girl, when on January 13th at around noon, upon going to pick up his mail, he had seen John sitting in a pickup truck in his chore clothes. John had been talking through an open window in the sub-freezing chill to his father, Ron who stood outside the truck's driver's side door. John was crying, and as Inspector Williams approached, he asked if everything was alright. John's father replied to Williams, John had a bad day. Just found out his wife and daughter died in a fire. Inspector Williams told the police he did not speak with John directly, and the interview ended. So how did John do this time? Had the husband, statistically rightly so, always considered the initial prime suspect, lived up to those great mournful expectations? And what hair stood up on investigators next when Miss Marilyn Riley, who had been previously questioned along with Donna's other co-workers at the National Bank of Canton, mentioned she had additional information that had come to light. Investigators spoke to Marilyn about John's unique character and the inner conflict that had been overboiling on the Tompkins family farm. The farm was breaking up over a fight as to whom would show sheep and groom them. Now the rumors of bestiality had thoroughly fanned into an all-consuming blaze and that John's brother Jay had to stop him before he killed George, uncle to John and Jay, and husband of wife Aunt Bonnie, who had herself walked in on the supposed romance among sheep. Adding that Donna had recently been upset over a $100,000 note that Donna had claimed, John forced her to sign for a new hog confinement barn just before separating. Police momentarily began to recollect and inquire into John's process of mourning with a bit more zest. Had this motivated the investigators to next speak with George and Bonnie themselves, attempting to inch their way closer to the individual John was? Indeed it had. As it was routine, but had it been more? Had there been a hunch, possibly one that grew into an all-out feeling that John more likely already possessed tractor loads of motive? George told the investigators he felt it necessary to first note that Donna was a bright, kind, outgoing person who had been eagerly pursuing her master's degree, taking night classes out at Spoon River College. And then George shifted into grittier gear, plowing forth with the bold statement, John and Donna's marriage was a real mess. The last two years or so had been really hard on Donna. She was taking a whole lot of mental abuse from John. He has no control over his temper. He goes berserk at the drop of a hat. And he was always lying to Donna about every little thing. 
George added that Donna was doing her best to raise Justine all on her own, stating in an equally bold tone and verbiage. Hell, John was only a father to Justine when it was convenient to him, and that was not very often at all. Bonnie then spoke up. The divorce had been dragging on because the family was doing all they could to make sure Donna would not get much. And Donna told me one day that John was not paying any financial support for Justine. She broke down telling me this, and how bad things had been. And Uncle George chimed in once more. I got big problems with John and my brother Ron, adding that the differences were mainly over personality. There was little doubt that the investigators concluded this interview with any less of a hunch pointing in John's general direction. Yes, John had publicly grieved, but what of that interview with the Tompkins' longtime family pastor, Mr. Mike Boyle? Pastor Boyle stated that in 91, he had attempted to counsel the couple, and that he had spent a lot of time with them both, but that they were not getting their homework done and that things had died off. John would tell me things were not good, and at first I even took John's side, but now I know it was John all along. I don't believe he was being truthful with me or Donna, not with anyone. And what would John lie about particularly? Well, about the farm setup. John just had a long history of lying, he said. Pastor Boyle added that John had a temper and that, on at least two occasions, the police had to be called on him. He even made accusations against me, and I've done my best to avoid him since, said Pastor Boyle. Go on, said investigators. Well, Ron was always calling me over, and I finally told him I believed the best option would be for John to leave the farm. And how did you come to that conclusion? Well, you know, I had heard that John was having sexual relations with his sheep. And I called Donna and asked if she was the one who had, you know, put that out there. And she told me she had not. But Donna said John had been upset with me, believing I was the one spreading the rumors around. But that John finally found out from Rodney Ruberg that Mike Boyle had confessed to him that he had made up those things about John. And that was the last time I ever spoke with Donna before the fire. Pastor Boyle also mentioned that he had heard Donna had gone on a religious retreat and that afterward, he had asked Donna if she thought she and John might get back together. But Donna said, no, not now, who knows, maybe down the road. And I know that John felt that Donna was not dedicated enough to Justine. And Donna felt that John didn't have sincere enough feelings for her or her faith. And she was really upset over that. I guess that they talked late one night and Donna had told John all about her beliefs and well... John told me that if the divorce went through, he might have to be hired on as a hired hand. And he told me that the partnership with his dad was, well, it's hard. I know John had trouble relating to his dad. And he just kept telling me that if the divorce went through, it would damage the partnership. Mr. Boyle stated that both John and Donna were individuals, and that each would speak up, but that he was unaware of any physical abuse between the two. And when asked, he said, Yeah, I talked to John the morning of the fire. And he told me that even though we had been at odds for the past six months or so, he still considered me one of his best friends. But I couldn't really tell if he was being sincere or not. How would you say John was mourning the loss? Well, he had tears. And his nose was running. On the following day, eight days after the fire, the police held their first interview with John on the farm, which we have previously covered in an earlier chapter. At that time, the officers found it peculiar that John would only refer to Donna and Justine as my wife and my daughter or baby. He also mentioned that all of Donna's surviving possessions were actually belonging to me, as he put it. He also mentioned, my wife didn't want to be the farmer's wife, and that my wife was a woman of the 90s, a career woman, and that he had fainted upon hearing the news of their deaths. But despite John's reaction to the tragic event, investigators walked away more than compelled to invite John to the police station for a follow-up interview. 
Force Special Agent Gary Smith and ATF Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer, John began the second sit-down session, this time in a claustrophobic interrogation room, exclaiming, I just cannot understand why or who would do this to my baby. I mean, I had heard Donna was seeing someone, but I never asked anything about it. Can you think of anyone at all who might have had motive to kill Donna and Justine? I don't. I mean, I can't, said John. I mean, I know she knew people I didn't know, such as whom, for example. Well, people up the Elks. John, have you ever thought about hurting Donna? No, of course not. I mean, I've been very angry and upset with her, yes. I mean, I took our marriage vows very seriously, but she tarnished all that. And I mean, as far as the divorce, getting a divorce should not be easy, and it sure has not been easy on me. John stated that on Tuesday night, he was not in Canton, but that he had been in Canton on Sunday night when he had dropped Justine off at home, and that he had talked to Donna twice by phone on Tuesday night, and had a counseling session with Pastor Boyle on Wednesday, the day of the fire. We've been getting along good since Christmas, he said, of him and Donna, and I thought maybe she might want to get back together. John again mentioned, as he had in the previous interview, that on Tuesday, Justine was taking a bath, and he couldn't talk to her, and that he had been watching a football game he had recorded the day before. I then called my girlfriend Sheila Martindale, he said, and then I went grocery shopping. I came home and didn't go anywhere. I stayed there until around 7 the next morning when I went to work at Dad's farm. Dad showed up around 10.45, I guess, and told me what happened. Don stated that he would always call Donna before ever going over to the house to pick up Justine. He would always be ready and waiting. He said she had a talking toy, a tutty ruxpin, but the tape was gone, and that this angered him. He said he did not go into the house to get Justine, and that he'd only been in the house but once before Christmas. He mentioned the $100,000 note, which had been refinanced to Macomb over a year ago. He said that Donna's life insurance was with Pekin Life, and that she was responsible for the premiums. They were mailed here, he said, and I'd take them over and give them to Donna. And when asked, his response was, I am responsible for life insurance only for myself and my daughter. He said he knew a Harold Wilson at the bank, who had arranged a trust fund for Justine, which Donna had requested in the divorce proceedings. Then John said, I asked my attorney Bruce Beal to find out where the money from the life insurance went. He added that he had begun to accept the divorce settlement of $25,000 and decided to finally sign the papers after the first of the year. My last motive would be to hurt my wife or my baby, he said. John, do you know Donna's boss at the bank, David Haynes? I mean, Donna told me a lot about him. She said he talked a lot about sports and that he was some kind of lawyer, but that he was slow, so he had to go to work at the bank. And he added that Donna's close friend, Carol Severt, had told him that Donna had a thyroid condition. When asked if John would submit to a polygraph exam, John agreed, mentioning, Everything I said was truth. And after a long pause, the scars will never heal. This whole thing has destroyed me. Again, as I have mentioned before, now is not the time to formulate or propose theories. Still, as facts pile up, in order to boil them down and concentrate that information into a sharpening form of truth, challenging questions must be continually raised. Let's start with the basics, such as, are those with a long history of lying good at it? Do those 100,000 hours of practice to reach mastery, according to Malcolm Gladwell, apply to the art of deception as well? Can expressions of emotion be solely encapsulated effectively enough to be considered normal? 
typical acts of proper grieving, statements such as, the scars will never heal, this whole thing has destroyed me, is saying that you are saying the truth, truth? To avoid twisting tongues, I might add a tempest of the mind. All truth passes through its own stages, this time being three. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently attacked. Thirdly, it is accepted as self-evident. It feels an awful lot like those stages of death, as though truth lives only to kill a victim of its own. Deception. But how do these steps, as do those of plausible bereavement, apply to a criminal investigation? First, an interview is given. Questions are raised and answers are achieved. These statements are then ridiculed by the follow-up response by investigators, no matter how slight. Secondly, as the pressure is applied, the thirst for honesty increases. Statements are held up to the light of day and under the knife for meticulous examination. Third, what choice left is there but two? One, an accusation of fault. What do you have spoken are lies. Two, to accept such statements as factual or truthful enough Thus, the investigators, searching for deception like a truffle pig, trotting along in a dimly lit forest of potential suspects and motives, and what other evidence may have you, such as body language, how we behave. And as we are scrutinized, as truth is defined, you must now perform the art of deception. Step 1. Prep your story and get your story straight. Figure out precisely what you're going to say. Prepare answers for any potential questions. Write down your lies to help you remember at once the time comes to actually do the deed. Step 2. Envision the lie. Envision your lie actually happening. That way you won't be making things up along as you go. You'll be remembering the event as if it actually occurred. Step 3. Keep eye contact. Maintain eye contact. Liars unconsciously avoid it, which makes people suspect something is wrong, and you do not want that. Tip. Don't smile too much. Liars tend to smile inappropriately. Step 4. Relax. Relax. Fidgeting and sweating is a dead giveaway. Step 5. Control your hands. Be aware of your hands. And most importantly, keep them away from your face. Research shows liars touch their noses and mouth unconsciously as they fib. Step 6. Act indifferent. Stay calm and don't get defensive. Keep a steady tone of voice. And if you feel fit to protest, please, none too much. Act like you don't care if the person believes you or not. You are innocent, after all. Now fly away free and clear, like the liar bird you are. Fact, a university study found women lie to make others feel better, while men lie to make themselves look better, and you must do as much. But what of those occasions which suit one to look worse? Those scars that will never heal. Look at me, how destroyed I am, how distraught, how disheveled, how delicate. Again, these are not answers, these are statements. Statements which evoke more questions. And thus, another statement. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. Mark Twain. And what of our proper mourning? Again in the words of Twain. Grief can take care of itself. And if there is no grief, sometimes logically we are left to fight fire with fire. This is a method of answering questions with questions, to let the questioner realize that they can find the answer by reasoning just as Socrates would say that the answer was in him all along. Thus Twain, that all-American wordsmith, more in touch with man's humor than most, once asked, Why is it that we rejoice at birth and grieve at a funeral? Answer, it is because we are not the person involved. 
Everything I said was the truth. I am innocent. But please stay seated, ladies and gents. We are just getting warmed up. As the investigation sped up, Special Agent Gary Smith and ATF Special Agent Larry Nickel spoke with Jill Churchill. Jill stated that she is the cousin of John Tompkins, and that she had heard rumors concerning Don and Justine's deaths as foul play, adding that Sherry Bourbon, bartender at the Elks, had also heard a lot of rumors. I heard that Dave Haynes didn't drive to Donna's that morning of the fire, she said. He walked the six blocks in the cold, and I heard that Dave has a key to Donna's, and that Dave's wife found out about his and Donna's affair. She said she knew Donna had been seeing Dave, Terry, and a rod or rob from the bank. And she added that she knew this because she learned it from the bartenders and waitresses at the Elks. And someone at the bank, she said, a teller that knew Donna was screwing Dave. Special Agent Ted Anderson of the Division of Arson Investigation returned to Canton to interview Mr. Clayton App, Trust Officer and Business Officer at the National Bank. The lead detective on the case, Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers, accompanied him. Mr. App essentially stated that he had worked at the bank since January of 76, and that he knew Donna from when he had started working at the community bank back in 84. She moved to the National Bank in 88 because she had a better chance of advancement. People were really impressed with Donna. And as her supervisor, I got to know her as an employee fairly well. Mr. App, did you know Donna outside the bank as well? I did, but Donna settled down after Justine was born. Would you say that Donna was a caring mother? I would. Do you think there is a possibility Donna may have harmed her daughter? No, not a chance. She loved Justine to death. I've heard rumors she may have killed herself, though. Committed suicide. But I don't believe it. Mr. App stated he knew Donna and John were having problems saying, but she wouldn't take it that far. But Donna did talk a lot about things not going well. And when was the last time you spoke with Donna before the fire? She talked to me in early December regarding some settlement figures, but we'd run into each other every few weeks or months or so. Mr. App, you mentioned that you knew Donna fairly well. Can you describe for us Donna's dating life? What was that like? She was single when I first met her, but she was strictly a bank employee, and she had not dated anyone from the bank that I recall. But I know she had dated Bruce White while working at the community bank back in 84. And there were rumors she was dating Kenny Owens, the director, and Jim Morgan, who I guess had followed Donna to Kenny's house one day. And that's how I found out about it. Mr. App stated he knew of no one Donna was close to, saying, I guess you could say that Donna had a difficult time making friends at the bank. And why is that? I think they were envious, jealous of her looks, thought she was too young, that they should have her job. Mr. App also stated that Donna had lived in at least two separate apartments since she left John, but that he had been to neither. I know she worked at the Elks, he said. I saw her there. She asked my stepdaughter if she could babysit for Justine. Detective Marty Boaton then entered the interview room. He mentioned a statement he had earlier collected from Mr. App in reference to the examination of the trash out front of his and David Haynes' residence. Yes, we are neighbors, he said. Mr. App had thrown out a pair of shoes while cleaning his closet. He had said he was unsure why there was a petroleum product on these shoes, but suggested that maybe it was from the fertilizer he had spread on the lawn, or maybe when he was working with his dog, who had fleas. He also mentioned that he had two kerosene heaters, but didn't believe he had his shoes on when he filled them. He said that David Haynes had moved in next door back in the fall of 91, and that the place had sat vacant for some time, that the bank had taken it back for non-payment, foreclosure, and that David moved in. 
He added that he had known David since back in 85. Dave worked with Claudia back then, he said. Got his degree late. And that before David moved to the bank, he said he had heard through the law firm that David was not working out the same. They told me he was probably not going to make partner. And I heard from Sarah, Dave's wife, that she was jealous of Don. She knew they had slept together and that they were now working together. Well, where? He said that his wife, Laura, would often mention that Sarah would say that she was mad at Dave, that he was in the doghouse. And Sarah would tell him he stayed out too late. Mr. Apton stated as the investigators scribbled about their pads that David had come to his house two weeks ago. Last Saturday, he said. The power was off all over town until 11-ish, I'd say. But Dave, he stayed until around 1.30 in the morning. And he was talking all about the case. What did he say? That you guys had questioned him. But that was after I asked him if he knew he was being considered a suspect. And what else? His theory was that John's father, Ron Tompkins, was somehow involved that he would save money over the years if she was dead. The investigators made eyes, and then Mr. App was asked about David's composure that evening. Very calm, cool, collected. He said he felt responsible since he is the one who told Donna the apartment was available. And he mentioned that he and everyone were tired of the investigators trying to prove that there was embezzlement going on in the trust office. He stated that he did not know of anyone Donna had been dating. She'd never mentioned anything, he said. But she did drop in the bowling alley one night late last fall. She went to the bar, had a couple of drinks, looked like she was waiting on someone or looking for someone. He then suggested that investigators speak with his wife, who may have additional information. She may remember more of the comments Dave made that night of the blackout, he said. And as the interview wrapped up, he mentioned, I think Dave's brother's house also caught on fire up in Monmouth. Early one evening, a Sergeant David Ayers had just returned home from his shift as lead detective on the case. He received a telephone call. It was Caroline App, Clayton App's wife. She said she was disturbed by a conversation that occurred between her family and the Haynes the night of the local blackout. It was late when the electricity went out. And since we have a kerosene heater, Dave and Sarah and the children came over to keep warm. Dave is a talker, you know, and he's always talking about the incident, the fire. But this night when we were talking about Don and Justine, Dave... He was just, how do I put it, unusually quiet. And I was giving my version of events, you know, my opinion on what may have happened. I was along into it when I said, But what I don't understand is why would someone put Don and Justine together? When Dave, who had all night been real quiet, head down as I said, all of a sudden popped up and blurted out, to hide the evidence. And this really, and this really, he really, what he said really startled me. I mean, it literally took me a few moments to regain my composure, my frame of mind, because it really shook me up. But then I agreed with him. And as soon as I did, he just plopped back down, silent again, with his head, you know, like bowing his head. Detective Ayers and Fire Marshal Anderson were called to the residence of Michelle Bell around the same time. Michelle requested to speak with the investigators regarding the case. Michelle said that she was an employee of the Canton Kroger store, and she stated that David Haynes was a regular customer who would usually come in on Sunday afternoons to buy groceries. One day, she said, around a week and a half, two weeks after the fire, I was working, and I saw him, Mr. Haynes, Dave. Well, I heard Dave talking to another man, and I heard Dave say, I'm glad she's gone. You know, talking about Donna. This man asked Dave why, and Dave said, because I was having an affair with her. 
who was sleeping in her bed. He also says something about living with her, which was strange. Did Mr. Haynes, Dave, mention anything else to this man? He said, well, you know, I worked with her and we were having an affair and I'm glad she's gone. We had an affair and I was afraid her husband was going to kill me. I know exactly how the house burned down. I know him personally. When Mr. Haynes, Dave, made these statements, do you believe it was possible they were made in jest? No, Dave was not his usual self that day at all. He was right there, close enough for me to touch. But he just didn't seem like himself. He was serious as sin. March 1st, 1993, Crime Stoppers offered a reward for up to $1,000 for any information leading to the arrest and indictment for the criminal offenses of double homicide and arson. Police said they had received numerous tips regarding the fire and asked that all those who had a tip to call Crime Stoppers or contact Sergeant David Ayers between 8.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. On March 6th, a grand jury who had first gathered a month prior reconvened in order to examine material evidence in the case that had thus far baffled the police. As the causes of death for Donna and Justine Tompkins remained unknown, though listed as suspicious and the investigation continued. On March 19th, the National Bank of Canton released a statement that the bank was now offering a $5,000 reward for information about the January deaths. We want to try to get some action, Bank President William D. Meadows said that Thursday. The bank is putting up 100% of this money. Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers also announced that the investigation had revealed the origin and location of the fire, but refused to release that information, saying it will cause harm to the case. While police know how the fire began, they had not been able to determine a cause of death for the mother and daughter. Though autopsy results revealed, they did not die of a result of the fire, yet that there was no sign of trauma to the bodies other than skin splinting from fourth-degree burns. The visitation had been closed casket. And David had previously mentioned during an interview on the podcast that his pallbearer carried an empty casket, but that he would not find out until later. As with many things unknown, I recall that quote, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. Or throwing those shoes out with the trash, with the evidence. Or what of check out aisle banter, jest, and a confession. Neither. Or both. After all, is sarcasm not a true lie? To survive on the battlefield, David Haynes would have learned in Vietnam, one must embrace the principle of hiding in plain sight. But let us not forget, we all mourn in ways as unique as our souls. And if Mr. David Haynes is not a unique soul, what is he? A soldier? A sports fan? A hunter? A lawyer indeed? Farm boy turned banker? A trust officer, yes, no one doubts this. But is Mr. Haynes a trusting man? I suppose only Sarah and Donna can tell. And of course our wordsmith, Mr. Mark Twain. If they, the dead, should speak, it would be found that in matters of opinion, no departed person was exactly what he had passed for in life. They would realize deep down that they, and whole nations along with them, are not what they seem to be and never can be. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic.
Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.